So many years ago, there was a man who was going to have a very complicated heart surgery. So he was at the hospital the day before, and he was sitting in his his little room. Uh, That's when a young nurse walked in, uh, sat down, and she she took his hand. She said, hey, I want want you to hold my hand. I want you to feel it. I said, okay. Then she said, now listen, tomorrow during the procedure, you are going to be disconnected from your heart and kept alive thanks to certain machines. But after the procedure, when your heart is restored, you're going to wake up in a special recovery room. Now, when you do, you'll be fully conscious of everything. You'll be able to hear everything around you, but you won't be able to move for several hours, which means you won't be able to sit up or talk or walk. You won't even be able to open your eyes. She said, during those hours, you are probably going to feel very helpless. But I want you to know that while that is happening, I'm going to be holding your hand just like I am right now. And so in those moments, I want you to know that until you are fully recovered, I'm going to be right here with you. You won't be alone. And I won't leave you until you have recovered. And it happened just like that nurse said. The man recounted later how this nurse held his hand during those very helpless hours that he faced. Now, most of us here probably haven't gone through a surgery that left us feeling quite like that, but I am certain that all of us have gone through times in our lives where we felt helpless, or maybe we felt hopeless. Those times when our situations, they seem really dire, they're too difficult to understand, we feel paralyzed by fear, we don't know which direction to go or even how to move in our situation, and sometimes we feel desperately alone. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe some of us feel that way right now in our lives. Now the truth is, as Christians, even if we feel alone, even if all others abandon us, if we're isolated in our situation, the truth is that God will never abandon us. God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He holds us during those tough times. But here's the thing, this is a truth that's easy for us to acknowledge in our heads as Christians and to nod along with. It's easy for us to do that until the hard times come. See, for some of us, it's in those hard times that we start to wonder if God really is there. We pray to Him and we we ask Him things like, God, if you're there, then then why do I feel this way? Or if you love me, God, why, why don't you just put an end to what I'm going through? Or God, if you're good, then why am I even going through this at all? Now I want you to know that this morning, we're not going to be able to answer all those questions that you have during those hard times. But I do pray this morning that all of us would see the truth that even when those hard times come, God is still good, believers. He is still good. And when we say that God is good, what we mean is that the things that God does are always good. They're always right and holy and just. And what we mean is that when He allows evil and brokenness around us to take place, His goodness means that He allows those things in order to bring about His good purposes. You see, He's just as good in our difficulties as He is in our triumphs, believers. And so this morning, as we conclude our Why I Believe sermon series, we're going to be looking at why we believe that God is good even when our circumstances aren't. 
So if you're going to follow along, and I hope that you will, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15 in your Bibles. Second Samuel 15. Now we're going to be jumping into a story, so I want to give you some context. What we're going to be looking at takes place during the life of, of David. Now, David is most well known for being uh, the young shepherd boy who killed that God-hating giant named Goliath. All right? That's what David's most well known for. David is also well known for his great failure, which was his sin with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with that, it's that David saw this married woman named Bathsheba. He was filled with lust towards her. He committed adultery, and then, in order to cover up his wrongdoings, he orchestrated the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. That's another thing David is known for. A third thing, certainly more positive than the last, David is known for writing many of the Psalms that we have in Scripture, that great book that we love so much that we're going to start studying in a couple weeks together. These are some of the things people know about David. And despite David's many faults, many failures, David was also a great king in Israel's history. He experienced many highs and many lows in his life, and this morning we're going we're to take a look at some of the lows that he experienced. So some background to 2 Samuel chapter 15 specifically. You also need to know this about David. David had many children as a result of having many wives and concubines, which, by the way, I want you to know that time and time again what we find in the Bible is at any time people go outside God's design for marriage to be between one man and one woman, anytime people do that, the result is always trouble. David was no exception. David had a lot of weaknesses and failures as a father, which led to weak relationships with his kids. So his firstborn son was named Amnon. And one day, Amnon he defiled his half-sister, Tamar. And you know what? We never see David's response to all of that. Instead, a couple years later, another one of David's sons named Absalom, Absalom responded to the situation. Absalom took things into his own hands and he killed Amnon for what Amnon had done. Once again, in that situation, we find, as you read the text of Scripture, very weak leadership from David as a father. So it was a few years after all those things that we now enter our text today. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says this. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, Oh, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to, to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. 
Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Pause right here for just a minute. Keep your place there in 2 Samuel 15. Understand what's happening here. Absalom was intentionally stealing the hearts of the people away from his father, David. He said, oh, you know what? If I were your king, I'd take care of you. I'd look out for your interests. You'd be good if I were your king. And this young, handsome, charismatic man won the hearts of the people over. Now, after he did this for a while, Absalom decided it was time. He led a rebellion against his father, David. Absalom went to the Israelite city of Hebron, where he declared himself as king to the rejoicing of a lot of people. Now, David himself, he was in Jerusalem when that was going on. That's where we're going to pick up in verse 13. It says this. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. I want you to stop right here and I want you to really think for just a minute about the situation that was just unexpectedly dumped on King David. He was just told that the hearts of the people, they weren't with him anymore. And you need to understand why that would sting. David had given his life in service to the nation of Israel. He led them in countless battles, captured the city of Jerusalem, established their capital there. Under his leadership and the blessing of God, the nation of Israel become a military force to be reckoned with in that area of the world. And the majority of the people, they just, they just abandoned him. Now, not everyone did, but, but most of them did. In fact, as the chapter goes on, we find that many of the people who followed David when he fled, they were, they were foreigners. They weren't even Israelites. Where was the nation that he had led for so many years? Well, they weren't with him. And as if that wasn't enough, it was who they abandoned him for. David's own son was betraying him, taking the kingdom away. Now, I've known parents who have been rejected by their grown kids. And that is a heartbreak that I hope none of you are experiencing. I hope personally never to experience. But Absalom wasn't just rejecting his father. He was trying to take everything away from him. Soon Absalom was going to try and hunt David down to kill him. And David only saw one recourse. He had to run. He had to abandon the city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, was often referred to as the city of David. David had to flee the city of David, the place of his palace and all his possessions. All those things were going to be in the hands of Absalom. These were the circumstances that David found himself in. He lost his relationship with his son. He lost the loyalty of the people. He lost his home and his possessions. He would go on to discover more of his formerly close friends who are now with Absalom. And while I pray that none of you ever face the types of things that David did here, I also know that many of you have and perhaps are right now facing loss in your life. You're facing loss. You, you were healthy. You were healthy. And then all of a sudden things were good and then out of nowhere that, that, that heart attack came, that stroke, 
that diagnosis that you were given? Your, your relationships were good, and then out of nowhere, they just, they just fell apart. Your position was secure, then your job disappeared. Your financial security, it dried up. Your friends, they abandoned you, and you just look around, and all you can see is loss in your life. And like David, you're just, trying to, you're just trying to pick up the pieces and make it. You're facing all these hard circumstances, and that, for a lot of us, that's when the doubts start to come into our mind. They did for David. Look at verse 24. David had left the city with his faithful friends, few as they were. Verse 24, and find this. It says, Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Well, they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. To, to really understand the significance what's happening right here, you need to understand why the Ark of the Covenant was so important. All right, basically, God, God commanded the Israelites to build the Ark years before this under the leadership of Moses. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was this ornate chest, this box. The top of it, the lid, was the mercy seat. Inside, they put a few items like the tablets of the law that God had given to Israel. But the Ark of the Covenant was a key part of worship for the nation. It represented the holy presence of God among them. And they would annually come before the ark of God and the mercy seat on top of it to make atonement for sin. This was a part of the heart of Israelite worship. But because it was a physical representation of God's presence, it was also taken sometimes into battles with the people. So they would know it was God who fought for them. You see, David knew all these things. And right now, David was saying, take the ark. Take, take the Ark of the Covenant back. It represents God's presence and his blessings and the worship. Take it, take it back. Because you see, David looks at everything that's going on and he says, maybe, maybe God isn't with me. Maybe God is, is with Absalom through this whole thing. Maybe all this is happening because God isn't pleased with me. And make no mistake, David knew his shortcomings and his Sin. He likely realized during this ordeal his poor leadership as a father, how his sin with Bathsheba, how some of these things were consequences for what he had done. But it's in such hardships as these when those doubts start to flood our minds. We start to wonder what God is doing, what he's thinking, and then for some of us those doubts include the thought, we know if people have abandoned me, maybe, maybe God has abandoned me too. Maybe you felt that way before where your circumstances, they were so overwhelming and unexpected. They were so bleak that you thought that maybe even God had abandoned you. And those doubts start to creep in. And then, and then, 
And then our enemy, the devil, comes and he whispers in your ear and he says, yeah, God, God doesn't want you anymore. No, God is done with you. No, you, you have made too many mistakes. Why, why would God want you anymore? And believer, I hope that you never fall for those lies of the enemy, the devil. As for David, he continued his march, fleeing for his life. And as he did, he kept learning more and more about who was for him and who had betrayed him. And just as you think for David that things couldn't get any worse than this, chapter 16 rolls around. And then this man, this man named Shimei, appears. He starts cursing David, pelting him and his officials with stones. Look at chapter 16, verse 7. It says, as he cursed Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom of this into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you, you, you're a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood, is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Sure, we've all heard that saying that sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, Shimei, he sure put that to the test, throwing just about everything but sticks at David and his men. And, and in this case, I actually think that the words, the words stung a little deeper than those stones. Because this scoundrel, this miscreant, this miserable human being comes out throwing dirt and rocks. But when he curses David, this, this was the essence of what Shimei was saying. He was saying, David, you deserve this. You deserve this. You deserve to be on the run. You deserve to be broken. You deserve to lose the kingdom. Hey, David, God did this to you. And guess what? You deserve it. And David thought, maybe he's right. Maybe I do deserve this. Maybe God sent him to say these things. Now, rest assured, some of what David was facing through this whole thing, they were consequences for his former failures. But this wasn't about Saul, and God didn't send Shimei out there. But sometimes we face these terrible circumstances, and sometimes believers, the terrible circumstances we go through, they are consequences for what we have done. And sometimes we're facing God's discipline for sin. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that if we're Christians, if we're children of God, we will face his discipline when we sin. And sometimes our circumstances are just a result of the fact that we live in a broken, sin-filled world. But for some reason, always, 
in those hard times, regardless of the reasons, in those hard times when the miscreants usually come out, those people who look at us and say, yeah, you deserve this. God's probably doing this to you. He doesn't want you anymore. And the, the problem is that a lot of times we start to believe that, the, these things that other people say, or we start to, we start to fall for these, these doubts, and we start to doubt that God loves us. We start to doubt His goodness towards us in these moments. Church, God is still good, even when our circumstances aren't. I think we could all agree that David's circumstances were about as low as they could get. And I think that David faced doubts. He didn't know whether or not God was going to restore him. He didn't know the plan. He didn't know what God was doing. He just didn't know. I think he faced a lot of these doubts that many of us face when we go through difficult times. But you know what David didn't doubt? You know, as you read the story, you won't find that he doubted the goodness and holiness of God. Now, how do I know this? Just look at the things that David said. What did David say earlier about the Ark of the Covenant? He said, well, maybe the Lord will bring me back, but let him do whatever's good to him. And then when Shimei came out cursing, David said, maybe God told him to do this, in which case, who am I to say anything? And then he went on to say, maybe the Lord will look on my misery, maybe, maybe he'll restore me. Do you read in there that David was doubting the goodness of God? That's not all David said. I want you to see what else David said during this ordeal. If you're following along in the Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. I mentioned earlier that David wrote many of the Psalms, and a few of the Psalms have descriptions before them, letting us know the circumstances surrounding when that Psalm was written. Well, this psalm tells us it was written by David when he fled from his son, Absalom. And I really want us to see what David said. Psalm chapter 3, verse 1. David wrote this. He said, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. You know, David, David had plenty of reasons, perhaps in our eyes, to give up in his situation he was going through. Throw in the towel, be done. At the very least, many people in his position would have given up their hope in God. They would have said, well, God isn't helping me. He's letting this happen. Maybe God isn't good. And so they go about it their way. Instead, as David faces all these mounting obstacles and all these uncertainties, there is one thing that he was certain of, and that is that his good God was still worthy of his trust. I want you to think about something. David, David still had soldiers with him. Okay? In fact, in 2 Samuel 17, 
the advisors for Absalom, they told Absalom, listen, the soldiers with your dad, they're as fierce as a mother bear robbed of her cubs. And not only that, David was an experienced soldier, but you'll notice that David's trust wasn't in his own abilities. His trust wasn't in the people with him. His trust was in God. God was the shield around him. God is the one who would lift his head up if God chose to do so. God sustained David and gave him rest while he was on the run. God gave him new breath in the morning. David didn't know what each morning would hold, but he knew who held him. He knew that if deliverance came, it was going to be by the hand of God. You know, sometimes our circumstances become so overwhelming. They're so unexpected. They're so intense that we are tempted to blame God. Maybe not for bringing the situation, but we're tempted to blame him for not putting a stop to it. Or we blame him because he doesn't do things in our timing in the situation. And then we start to put our hope in the wrong places instead. We start to put our hope in our friends or in our own abilities. But like David, believers, like David, we need to remember that our hope, our confident assurance is always to be found in God. Why? Because God is good. He never stopped being good. And he loves you. He never stopped loving you just because you're in the midst of a difficulty. More than that, God's goodness is not based on rescuing us from all trouble. No, no, no. His goodness is based on being with us in all of our troubles and then using those troubles for his good and greater purposes. Believers, sometimes we face trials and tribulations because of our own actions or our sin. We do. Sometimes that happens. But in those cases, we need to recognize our sin, repent of it, and return to the Lord and learn from that discipline. But sometimes we face difficulties because this is a broken world. And God allows us to go through those things. He has a purpose. He wants to refine us in our faith. Those trials are supposed to help grow us in our faith. Something greater is the intended result. Well, think of it like this. In, in South Africa, there are some places that are very prone to wildfires different times of the year. South Africa. So it gets hot, the the wildfires. And of course, when we think of fire, we think of destruction, right? We think of loss. We have the world, after the fires have come through and devastated everything, all of a sudden a flower grows out of the ashes there. It has these, these bright red-orange bulbs. You can't, can't miss it. It's easy to see it. You see all this destruction, but there, there is something really beautiful, this new life that's growing out of the ground. Uh, this plant is commonly referred to as the fire lily. But here's the thing, the fire lily only grows after the fire. And believers, there are many times in our lives when vibrant spiritual growth comes as the result of the fiery trials that we face. Those things certainly are not pleasant. Sometimes it's in those intense trials when we feel like everything is falling apart, when there's just this, this, this destruction all around us. It's in those moments that God intends to bring something greater as a result. I think David understood that. He certainly understood that God wasn't to be blamed because God's too good for that. In fact, David had this mindset that if his hardships were from God, then you know what? God had good reasons. Why? Because God is good. And God didn't stop being good. So why should David stop trusting him? And why should we? 
Why should we stop trusting him? Believer, whatever it is that you are facing, whatever it is that you are about to face, God is not going to stop being good. Which means that he's not going to stop being worthy of all of our trust and all of our hope. He's greater than our enemies. He's greater than all the situations that are around us. And he is better than anything else we could have in this life. Which means that even if our trial should leave us destitute, because we still have God, we can rejoice. Because God is good. Even when our circumstances aren't. Believer, I don't know what you might be facing right now. Or what you're about to face in your life. In fact, if you're in the midst of a hard time, I I don't know how long or short that time might be for you. I don't know if God will restore everything to you the way it once was when that hard time is over. David's trial that we have been reading about, this trial in David's life didn't last particularly long. And God did restore David to his throne, but David still faced loss. Absalom died. That broke David's heart. Not only that, but shortly after this, a second rebellion broke out as a result. There was still loss, even though it was a short trial. On the other hand, sometimes God's people face long trials. You know, those ones that seem like they just never end. The Apostle Paul faced something like that, something he referred to as a thorn in his flesh. He just couldn't get rid of this thing that tormented him. But you know... In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as he talked about it, Paul said that he learned as a result of that to boast, to delight in hardships, in trials, in tribulation. He said the reason was because he realized in those moments Christ's power was made perfect in weakness. Look, I don't know the answers to what you may be facing, but I know that God is good. And so, believer, whatever your trial is, whatever the length of it, whatever loss you might be facing, we need to remember that God's goodness is not determined by our situations, but that in all our situations, we still should praise him for his goodness. And so the truth that I want us to see this morning is this. Our hardships should not cause us to doubt God's goodness, but instead should cause us to trust in our good God. Our hardships didn't drive us further from God. They should drive us closer to God. And that'll be the case when we truly trust and believe that he is good. So just as a few practical takeaways this morning, believer, a few things I want to mention. When you find yourself in the midst of one of those really hard times, facing difficulties, situations, brokenness, first, it is always a good practice for us to examine ourselves for any unconfessed sin in our lives. It's always a good practice, believers. Perhaps it's God's discipline that we are facing. In which case, as I mentioned before, we need to repent of that sin. We need to return to him. We need to learn from the discipline. But it's not always sin. Sin's not always the reason we face hard times. And so when it's not sin, I'd encourage you to examine how it is that God might be using that trial to grow you in your faith. Maybe he wants you to stop relying on yourself and start relying on him. Maybe... Maybe it's so that you would let go of something that's been getting in the way of your relationship with him. Examine how is it that God is trying to grow me through this. The third thing is, use those hard times that you go through as opportunities to draw close to the Lord in prayer and in trust. Uh, not, not to be a time of doubt and blame. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, 
It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We need to draw close to God in those times of hardship, not run from Him. Fourth, believer, I want to encourage you that when you are going through a very difficult time, take moments to remember what God has done for you in the past. Remember His goodness to you in the past. David, David knew that God was his deliverer. And one of the reasons why David knew that is because God had delivered him a lot of times in the past. In fact, I can't help but think that as David was on the run from Absalom, a situation that regularly came to his mind was how in his younger years, David was hunted by King Saul. God delivered him from that. He didn't forget God's goodness just because he was going through a difficulty. So remember God's goodness when you go through difficulty. And if ever you find yourself having a hard time trying to remember the good things that God has done for you, believer, just remember the cross of Christ. Remember what Jesus did to save you from sin and hell. And remember that God is good. And as a church, as a church, let's make sure that we are learning to comfort and encourage and pray for one another, believers. The local church is supposed to be a place where we, we draw together in fellowship so we can rejoice with the believer who is rejoicing. We can mourn with the believer who is mourning. And we can help each other in those difficulties that we face. But we can only do that if we're willing to let other Christians into our lives. Don't be upset if you come to church and nobody encourages you and nobody prays for what you're going through if you don't share with people what you're going through. We need to be willing to bring other believers into our lives. Share with someone your struggle so they can pray with you. First Baptist Church of Oxford, let's learn to lift one another up in prayer and encourage one another. Let's do that as we trust in our good God together. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, I want you to understand that if you haven't picked up on it already, we do not give our lives to Jesus because we're going to have an easy life. That's not going to happen. In fact, the Bible guarantees just the opposite. If we give our life to Jesus Christ, we're going to have a harder life. Because not only do we face all the wickedness that everybody faces in the world, but we're also going to face persecution for our faith. And the difference, though, is that we go through those hardships with Jesus. And more than that, as Christians, we're going to go through our eternity with Jesus. You see, friend, you need to understand that if Jesus is not your Savior, not only is He not with you in this life, He's not going to be with you in eternity if you continue that way. And to be separated from Jesus in eternity is to be separated from him in a place called hell. That's a just punishment for sin. But the good news is, he loves you. He loves you so much that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Because that's what's separating us from God. So he took the punishment for us. He took the payment, the penalty. After he died, Jesus powerfully rose from the dead. And now he stands in heaven waiting to forgive you of all your sins. Waiting to bring you into a relationship with him. It'll never end. He'll walk with you through all the hardships in life until this life does end and you get to walk with him for all eternity. But friend, if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, please understand the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you have never made that decision, friend, I hope you won't leave today without making that decision, without talking to somebody. You can come and talk to me during this final song that we're going to sing. You can talk to me before you leave. You can find Pastor Brandon. Maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you need, to, you need to pray through some things. 
some brokenness, some hardships, some loss, some doubts that you've been going through. Believer, I'd encourage you to respond during this time of invitation. You can do it where you're sitting or as you stand and sing. But understand, if you come forward and you pray at the altar, I promise you other believers will surround you and pray with you, even if they don't know what you're going through. They'll pray with you. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that there is anybody here today that doesn't know that Jesus Christ is their Savior. They don't know that they've been forgiven of their sin, that they've received eternal life, that you are with them and will be for all eternity. If there's anybody here in that position today that just doesn't know, I pray they wouldn't leave that way. But they would find someone to talk to, someone to answer their questions. They would come down and talk with me during this final song. But Father, if there's anybody here that's ready to make that decision right now, I pray that you would move in their heart, that that individual would go to Jesus Christ in prayer, admitting that they are a sinner, confessing their sin to him, asking him for his forgiveness, and asking him for that eternal life that he guarantees. And Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us when those hard times come. Because you told us in your word that they will. They will come. But when they do, help us not to stop trusting you. Help us not to doubt your goodness. Help us to remember all your goodness towards us in those moments where we feel like we just, we can't, we can't, can't keep doing this. We can't keep moving forward. I pray that we would find encouragement in the arms of the family of Christ. I pray that you would help us to be a church that prays for one another, encourages one another, lifts each other up, because all of us are going to have those times where we go through difficulty and loss. So I to be there for each other. And Father, I thank you that you are, as the Bible says, you are the God of all comfort. And so I pray if there's anybody here that's experiencing great heartbreak and loss, I pray that not only would they find comfort with their fellow believers, but I pray that they would run to your loving arms. That they would choose during this difficult time to draw very close to you. And Father, I pray that even when hard times come, we would still be found singing your praises when we leave this place. So that you'd be glorified in our lives, all the highs and all the lows. Because Father, you are good. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.